Have you ever noticed that if something good happens in your life, you tend to explain it by taking credit for it, uh, but if you fail, you explain it by blaming your, your circumstances? You ever done that? Uh, you probably you've seen this in your kids, yeah, especially if you've got teenagers. There's a name for this. Psychologists call it fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution error. It goes like this. If I do well on the test, it's because I'm smart. But if I fail the test, it's because the teacher can't teach. Right? I bet your kids have told you that, right? I know mine have. If I get a promotion, it's because they recognize that I'm the most qualified person there. And if I don't get the promotion, it's because of office politics. Uh, If I lose weight, it's because I cut back on my eating and I worked out and I worked hard to accomplish that goal. But if I don't lose weight, it's because I was just too busy to exercise. We all struggle with fundamental attribution error at times. In fact, this tendency to accept the credit and to blame others, this tendency has been around for a long time. One day Jesus said this, he said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? At least since the days of Jesus. We've had this tendency, haven't we? At least since the days of Jesus, mankind has had this tendency to look at our sin differently. My sin doesn't seem as noticeable or as urgent or as bad as this sin in your life. You see, my sin is kind of justified because of what I'm going through, you know? Because of what I'm going through. That's the reason. And so my sin is kind of justified. In fact, my sin isn't really even sin. It's just a problem that I'm trying to work through right now. Or, or my sin even has an expiration date on it. You see, I plan to stop this once I get married, or I plan to stop this when I get out of college, or I, I plan to stop this when, when my kids are grown. I plan to stop this when I get another job. I, we always have an expiration date on our sin. We intend to stop it at a certain point. And, and do you know why we, do these kind of, why we play these kind of mental games? We do it because... Sometimes it's just too uncomfortable to face the truth. It's much easier just to fake it. Now here's the problem with that strategy. Proverbs 28, verse 13, don't turn there, but in Proverbs 28, 13, uh, the word says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And the word conceals in the Hebrew language there has the idea of refusing to admit your guilt. It has the idea that you are intentionally trying to hide, trying to cover, trying to disguise your struggles. In fact, the Living Bible translates that that verse this way. People who cover over their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and forsake them, they will receive mercy. Now please understand, this is important, uh, kind of a foundational statement to the whole message. Please understand something. No sin is so large that God can't forgive it, and no sin is so small that you can afford to hide it. You get that? No sin is so large that God can't forgive it, but no sin is so small that you can afford to keep it hidden. Now, there's a verse that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I've been studying it recently, just in my personal quiet time. In fact, I wrote that verse here on my 3 by 5 cards. This is just a spiral-bound little 
cards said, and, and I sometimes write verses on those that uh, just in my quiet time, if I come across a verse that means something to me, that speaks to me, I'll write it down and, and uh, just occasionally I'll flip through those things, trying to continually put God's truth in my mind, trying to continually remember those things that God has shown me previously. And so I don't remember when I wrote this down, but probably the last week or two I wrote this verse down. And I've been looking at this verse for a while now. I've been meditating on this verse for a while. I've been thinking about the importance of this verse for a while. Uh, It's just 11 words. But as I looked at these 11 words, these 11 words have given me hope in the last few weeks or last couple of weeks. Here's what the 11 words say. I'm not going to tell you where it is yet, but when I read it, I bet some of you already know where it's found. Here's what it is. It says, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Maybe you don't need those words of hope like I do. But I've needed those words of hope lately, and I've written them down on that card so I could think about them, so I could remind myself of it, so I could continually look at that. It sits on my desk, come near to God. He'll come near to you. These 11 words have been like a signpost to my spirit, pointing me back to the simple truth that I need my Heavenly Father on a daily basis. These 11 words have been like a promise that I hold on to, that God is still there and His mercies do not end. Come near to God and He'll come near to you. These 11 words have been a reminder as I open my Bible. God has used those 11 words to remind me that I need to meet with Him rather than look for the next sermon. It's always the tendency for a preacher. is to look for the next sermon, look for the next Bible study. And these 11 words have been on my desk lately to remind me that I first need to focus on Him, not on the next sermon. So if you don't know where this verse is yet, let me tell you so you can find it in your Bible. It's in James chapter 4, verse 8. James chapter 4, verse 8. If you open God's Word... Or turn it on, whatever you have there. James chapter 4, verse 8. If my guess is right, many of you need these 11 words of hope. 11 words of hope found in James chapter 4, verse 8. I know I've quoted them, but I want you to sit in your text so that you can perhaps underline it or highlight it. Verse 8, the first half of the verse says, Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Now there's several things we can talk about today, but the first thing I want you to notice in in this text is that James tells us that we can come back to God with confidence. We can come back to God with confidence. You see, there is an invitation in the first half of verse 8. And the invitation is this, come near to God. It's an invitation. Come near to God. You know what that invitation is saying? It's reminding you and reminding me, and it has reminded me as I've looked at it on my desk, this invitation is reminding us all, you have access to God. You have access to God. But it's up to you whether or not you use that access. And so James has come near to God. And that's why I'm going to grab this chair. Maybe that'll help you. Let's just imagine that you've got 
Oh, I don't know. Let's, let's say you got financial problems. And I mean, your bills always are greater than your income. Uh, your credit cards are maxed out. You, you just constantly under the stress of debt and you never have enough money. Now, if Dave Ramsey was sitting in this chair and you had those kind of financial problems, do you think you would want to come talk to him? Of course you would. If you had access to Dave Ramsey, yeah, you, you, and you had those kind of financial problems, yes, you'd want to talk to him. Okay, well, let's say that you've got family problems. There's turmoil in your family. You've got some kind of personal problem and family issue. What if Dr. Phil was sitting in this chair? Would you want to talk to him? Okay, well, that's probably not a good example. Uh, well, what if you had spiritual problems? What if you had some very deep spiritual problems and Billy Graham was sitting in this chair? Would you want to talk to him? Absolutely. You'd have to get behind me, but you'd, you'd do it, right? Absolutely you would. I mean, if you had these kind of problems and you had those kind of experts sitting in the chair that you have access to, you would be foolish not to take advantage of it. And ladies and gentlemen, I have to remind you that the one who sits on the throne knows more than Billy Graham. He knows more than Dave Ramsey. The one that sits on the throne of heaven, we have access to him. And the Word of God says, come near to God. I like the way Hebrews 4.16 says it. It says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Did you hear that word? Did you hear that phrase? Let us draw near. Sounds a lot like James. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I don't have to tell you this. You already know it. But let me just remind you, life sometimes can be crazy and painful and messy and sometimes even tragic. So the next time when there's an accident or when there is a job loss, when you have a bad report from the doctor, the next time that something unexpected happens in your life and your family, the next time you're served with divorce papers or, or your son or your daughter is in trouble, you need to remind yourself of this one simple powerful truth found in these 11 words of hope. And that simple powerful truth is this, I have access to God. So if you have financial difficulties, if you have problems in your family, if you have some kind of deep spiritual issue, if there's some kind of addiction, if there's some kind of a, 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 whatever the problem may be, you need to remind yourself, I have access to God. Never forget that. You see, you have access to His mind through His Word, and you have access to His throne through prayer. You have an opportunity. You have the, the opportunity to take that problem, whatever it is. And James says in that text, come near to the one who has the answer. Come near to the one who has the power. Come near to the one who knows what you're going through. Come near to God. I was reading a book this week by Bob Bodine. <clears throat> he said that when he was growing up, when he was in his home, Growing up, and whenever he faced something as, like as a teenager, and, and it was kind of overwhelming, and he didn't know what to do, and he didn't have an answer, and he wasn't sure how everything's going to work out, and he'd get all uptight about everything. He said when those kind of issues would arise in his life or in his family, that his mom would ask him three, what he called, simple 
but disturbing questions. He said that they're simple because I couldn't believe that I hadn't thought of them. He said they're, they're disturbing because of the issues that it makes me face. And so he said whenever we had issues in our family, whenever I had personal struggles and I didn't have the answer for it and I was overwhelmed by life, he said my mom would ask me these three questions and here they are. You might want to write them down. The first question is this. Does God know your situation? Good question. Of course he does. Question number two. Is it too hard for him to handle? Of course it's not. Question number three, probably the best question of all. Does he have a good plan for you? He said, every time I got confronted with problems that were bigger than I was and and things that I couldn't handle and things I had a hard time dealing with, every time, he said, my mom would ask me those three questions. Does God know about your situation? Is it too hard for him to handle? Does he have a good plan for you? Rick Warren, in something I was reading this week, said, listen to this. He said, God knows what you're going through, why you're going through it, and how you feel about it, and he knows you better than you know yourself. And so here's what I want you to remember. God knows. God knows. In fact, I want you to say that out loud with me. Just those two words, say it out loud with me. God knows. That was pretty good, but let's try to do it a little bit better this time. These two words, I want you to remember, they are God knows. That's why this invitation is so important. God knows. And the invitation is, come near to God. Come near to the one who knows. Now, can I ask you a practical question? What could you possibly lose by trying? I mean, if there was even a 1% chance that God would meet with you, would you do it? If I said to you, you know, I don't know if it's going to work, but, but if you want to try to pray and talk to God about that, I don't know if it's going to work, but he, he may show up. You know, if there was a 1% chance that God would actually meet with you, I don't mean physically, but God would actually meet with you and help you. If there was a 1% chance that Almighty God would meet with you, would you do it? And of course you would. And I say to you, there's not a 1% chance. There is in most situations a 100% chance that he will. And the reason I can say that with such confidence is because of the second half of that verse. It says, come near to God. And the second half of the verse says, and he will come near to you. First half is an invitation. The second half is a promise. And he will come near to you. This morning I was sitting out on the porch and I was watching the sun come up and it was gorgeous, it was beautiful. Uh, it, it was uh, yellow and red and purple and blue and it was all on the, in the clouds. I mean, it was just absolutely gorgeous. And then the, the bright, bright yellow sun and, and I just sat there marveling at that and I sat there for a few moments and I tried to you know, take a picture and capture it and all that kind of thing and then it hit me. I have access to the one who did that. He can do that. Surely, he can handle what's going on in my life. Now, here's the promise. Come near to God, and here's the promise. And he will come near to you. And all of a sudden, you probably are starting to think, well, I don't know about that, because... 
maybe for some people, but in my situation, and, and I've disappointed him, and God probably doesn't want a whole lot to do with me, and, and I know that I've let him down, and I haven't been living the way that I should, and I know I've been doing some things that I shouldn't have been doing, and, and all of those kind of reasons show up in your mind and in your heart why God shouldn't show up in your situation. And here's what the promise says. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. And there's no exception clause except. So here's the promise. Listen to it again. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Now the amazing thing about that promise is that it is placed in the context of our struggle with sin. When James wrote these words, he was writing to people who, was de- who were dealing with a, a sin problem. They-, they had some sin issues in their life. They, they were not the perfect people. They, they had some serious things going on. Let me show you this, beginning in verse 4. Let's just read verses 4 through 10, and you'll see how serious these folks were in their struggle with sin. Verse 4, you adulterous people. All right, time out. Right now, we already have a clue that these are not really good people, right? They, these are not very faithful people to the Lord. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He calls to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? And that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the who? To the humble. Remember that. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then those 11 words of hope, come near to God, and he will come near to you. But then notice how directly he speaks in the next part of verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. In clear-cut and very specific language, James assures us that we can come back to God, and when we do, even though there is sin in our lives and sin in our heart, James says when we genuinely come back to God, what we will find is there is a loving Heavenly Father waiting there to meet us. You probably know the story, I'm guessing, of what we call the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. It reminds me a lot of this text. Uh, scholar N.T. Wright has said, yes, we call it the the parable of the prodigal son. He said, we could call it the parable of the running father. Let me tell you the story, just the abbreviated part of it. There was a younger son, younger of two sons, who decides he wants to leave his father, leave his family, and go off into a distant country for some wild living. And he does that. He gets all the money that he can out of dad. He goes off to the foreign country. He lives like the devil. And he enjoys it for a while, and then he runs out of what he has. And eventually he comes to his senses, and he decides to go back to his father and to confess his sin. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20, just listen to what he says. So he got up and went to his father. The the word says, he got up, Jesus telling this story, he says, so he got up and he went to his father. Sounds an awful lot like James, come near to God. So he got up and he went to his father. Now, I want you to listen to the rest of that verse. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Knowing what he had done, knowing the sin issues in his life, knowing how he had failed the family, knowing how he had disgraced his name. In spite of that, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And listen to the rest of this verse. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Oh, you might call it the, the parable of the prodigal son. You could easily call it the parable of the running father. He ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. And Jesus told that story to say, that's the way God feels about you when you decide to come back to him. Yeah, but what about in all that I've done and all that I'm struggling with and all that I'm facing? I know, I know. But Jesus said, this is the way God feels about you when you come back to him. That's why James could write, come near to God and he will come near to you. We can come back to God with confidence. That was number one. Number two, we must come back to God with real repentance. You see, James tells us that. He tells us how to come back to God in the second half of verse 8 through verse 10. Look what he says. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. That is, the hands represent what we do outwardly. And and most of the sins, perhaps not all, but most of the sins we involve ourselves in, in some way or another, involves our hands. So James says the first step is that Outwardly, there has to be some changes. There has to be some real repentance. So he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and then inwardly purify your hearts, you double-minded. And he says, grieve and mourn and wail. What you used to laugh over, what you used to laugh about, what you used to act like was no big deal. James says, if you really are coming back to God in repentance, then it will grieve your heart. What used to grieve him will now grieve you. So he says, grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then here's the way to kind of understand it all. He just simply says, humble yourselves before the Lord. And he'll lift you up. The idea, everybody look up here. The idea when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, it's the idea of you're laying on the floor on your face. And you're confessing your failure to God. You're laying on your face and confessing to God how much you need Him. And the idea is, as the loving Heavenly Father, He will pick you up. We can come back to God with confidence. But we must come back to God in repentance. Now the concept of repentance is largely a foreign concept in our society today. Because in our society today... Anything goes. In our society today, you decide what's right for you. I'll decide what's right for me. Nobody can tell us what's right or wrong. Whatever you want to do is fine. In our society, there are, there are very few moral standards anymore. Except, may I remind you, that this standard is greater than society's standard. And the concept of repentance... 
is, is a foreign concept to us, but let me explain it to you because sometimes we mistake remorse for repentance, and they are not the same. Repentance is not just getting caught. Repentance is not changing in order to please somebody. Repentance is not simply expressing your regret. Repentance is not making cosmetic, superficial changes. The purpose of repentance is not even to make you feel better about yourself. The purpose of repentance is to restore you into a right relationship with Almighty God. Repentance is when you're willing to forsake sin so that you can come back to the Lord that you have forsaken. That's repentance. The heart of repentance is that our desire to come back to God that we once loved, come back to the God we once served, come back to the God we've been running from. The heart of repentance is, I will do whatever I have to do to come back to Him. My desire to come back to Him is greater than my desire for the sin I've been been involved in. And so James just says, here's how you do that. And wash your hands, sinners, purify your hearts, your double-minded, grieve and mourn and wail. I love this idea of coming back. Because you can find it all through the Bible. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, this concept, this invitation of sinful people, rebellious people, coming back to God is found all through Scripture. Malachi in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.7 says, Return to me and I will return to you. Sounds a lot like James 4.8. Malachi 3.7, Return to me and I will return to you. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to draw near to God with a sincere heart? What does real repentance look like? I'm going to give you three descriptions real quickly. Here's the first one. Number one, repentance will change your behavior. Repentance will change your behavior. That's why he says, wash your hands and purify your hearts because genuine repentance... There there should be an outward change in your behavior. And now that change may take a while to be evident, but eventually that change should be evident to you and to everyone around you. Real repentance will change your behavior. Number two, real repentance will change your thinking. That's why he says in the last of verse 8, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're no longer double-minded. You're single-focused now on what God says. And now you're grieving and mourning and wailing. You're... there's been a change in your thinking. You are now repulsed by the sin that you once indulged in. That's, That's repentance. Number three, repentance will also lead to humility. In verse 10, he said, Humble yourself before the Lord and... He will lift you up. I I like what the old Puritan said, Thomas Watson. He said, do you know when you've been humbled enough for your sin, it's when you're willing to let go of your sin. You've been humbled by your sin when you're willing to let go of it. So, here's the promise and the invitation. Come near to God and He will come near to you. Now, for some of you, it's not a temptation that has been your struggle, is it? For some of you, it's, it's, it's maybe a test, but these 11 words of hope are still true. That you, you've gone through the, the hardest test of your life, or you're in the middle of it right now. It's been the greatest trial you've ever experienced. 
and you felt kind of distant from God, disconnected from God's people because of this, this test that you've been under, and God is simply lovingly saying to you, come back. Come near to God, and He'll come near to you. For some of you, it's not a test, but somebody really hurt you. And even today, if I bring up their name, you're going to instantly start getting angry. They hurt you so bad. You know one of the strangest things that I found in serving in two pastors over the last 30 years? One of the strangest things that I found is this. When people hurt us deeply, we not only pull away from them, we often pull away from God. And I think the reason that we do that is because we're so bitter towards them that that bitterness even ruins our relationship with God. So some of you have been hurt by someone and because you've been hurt by someone, you've pulled away from them, you've pulled away from others, and, and you've, you've pulled away from God. And God says, come near to me, and I'll come near to you. Some of you, it's, it's not a trial, it's not a test, it's, it's not somebody has hurt you. For some of you, it's just that you're tired. You're burned out. And this, this is where I identify with the verse. You're tired. Just last Sunday, Pete Wilson, who is a prominent pastor of Cross Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. 14 years ago, Pete started that church. He poured his life into that church for 14 years. Church grew to 7,000 people. He's the founding pastor of that church. And last Sunday, he stood up in front of his congregation and he said, I'm tired and I'm broken and I'm burned out and I'm stepping down. Some of you know what that, some of you would like to do that, right? You'd like, where do I go to resign? Where, where do I go to step away? Where do I go to quit? Because I don't have anything left in the tank anymore. That's kind of, I'm not burned out and I wasn't quite yet burned out, but I'm glad the Lord showed me this verse before I got there because my tank was getting empty. And the reason I wrote that verse down on the card is because I realized good leaders can't lead if they're leading on empty. And God reminded me, and I've kept it on my desk in front of me, God has reminded me over and over in the last several days, come near to me, and I'll come near to you. Here's what I want you to know. When you meet with God, you suddenly have everything that you need. I didn't say everything will work out the way you wanted it to work out. I didn't say he's going to answer every prayer you've ever prayed. But I have said, I am saying this. When you come near to God and God comes near to you, all of a sudden you have what you need. Because, look up here, you have access to God. What do you need more than that? What could help you? more than that what could lift your spirits more than that what could give you hope more than that it's not a hopeless situation because you have access to God come near to me he says and I'll come near to you I want you to bow your heads with me as we offer this invitation today I want you to also think about not just how much you need this message and how God is working in your life, but also want you to realize, you know, there, there's somebody else that you know perhaps who could have used this today. There's somebody else that you know that they've been hurt by life or by someone 
or other situations, circumstances has caused them to draw away from God. That's the reason they're not in church today. That's the reason you haven't seen them on that pew or in that Bible study class. That's the reason that neighbor hasn't been back in church in years. It's because something happened that drove a wedge between them and God. And do you understand that you could be that bridge to encourage them next Sunday to come back? You could be the one God uses to help them take that step back into a right relationship with God. So I hope and I pray that you'll remember that yellow sticker, that yellow uh, sticky note. Hope it's where you can see it and it will remind you to pray for that person and invite them next Sunday. But before we get there, we need to deal with you, don't we? And in the invitation time, in the first service, we had people on this altar where they were simply saying, God, I'm coming back. And I don't know what their situation was. I, I don't know if they're tired. I don't know if it's been a test and a trial. I don't know if somebody hurt them. I don't know if it's a temptation and a sin that they've been called up in. But we had people on this altar in the first service, and they were on their face before the Lord simply saying, God, I'm coming back. I'm going to draw near to you because I desperately need you to draw near to me. Would you do that in this service? Would you do that in this invitation? Just as soon as we sing or even while I'm talking, you can, you can just stand up right where you are. Just come on down to the front and just get on this altar. Just getting before him and saying, Lord, I need to come near to you. And I really need you to come near to me. You know me. I need your help. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you that you invite us, even when we are the prodigal son, you invite us to come back. And I pray that today in this invitation, many lives will be restored as they begin to take those steps back to you. And God, as they come back and humble themselves, as they come back in repentance, I pray that they would experience what they haven't experienced in weeks or maybe in years. I pray that they'll experience your presence and your power. In Christ's name I pray.